Good evening. Good morning. <laughs> Merry Christmas. This year in the diocese, we are observing a year of the Holy Eucharist. Our bishop is very concerned that you and I are both enriched in our faith and in our love of the most blessed sacrament. And so of the many subjects that we could talk about on Christmas Day, I thought the most appropriate would be to speak on Christmas and the Eucharist, because there are so many correlations, after all, between Christmas and the Eucharist. In both, we speak of the same truth, the same person, Jesus Christ, humbling himself to enter our world in human flesh. So we can speak of three ways that Christmas and the Eucharist are intertwined. First, both Christmas and the Eucharist are absolute facts. Second, both are mysteries. And third, both are meant to teach us a profound and not easily learned lesson. St. Luke begins his gospel positioning us at a very precise moment in earthly history. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we're positioned in the first century, A.D., during the lives of two historical figures, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, and I'm sure you don't know much about either of them. But just their names gives us a place that we can look at in time. Later on, in the next chapter, St. Luke will give us even closer specifics. He says, It was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Traconitus. Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. All these names to position us at an exact point in history. The historical fact of the man, Jesus, is clearly positioned in time and attested by major historians all throughout time in every culture. No real historian doubts the existence of the man, Jesus. But it is not just the man, Jesus, of whom we speak. Christmas, that is the incarnation of the second person of the most blessed Trinity, is a fact of history. In a point of time, at a definable place, the God of heaven and earth was born of a woman and came to live among us as a man. It is a fact that the infinite God became unexplainably a finite creature. It is a fact to which historians attest, but to which we know is no mere statistic of history. Rather, it was a fact planned by God from all eternity. This is the fact of Christmas. The Word became flesh. What then is the fact of the Eucharist? It is the same Jesus who was born on earth not only to become a man, but to remain a man. St. John tells us that he not only came into the world, but he is in the world in the present tense. Christ came not merely to walk upon the earth for three decades, he came to stay. The Eucharist is Christmas prolonged, because faith tells us that once God became man, he decided to remain a man. 
From all the reaches of past, all the reaches of eternity, God will always remain a man. And this God-man is here in our midst, right now, in the tabernacle. Think about the name Bethlehem. In Hebrew, the term means house of bread. In Arabic, it means house of flesh. Indeed, Bethlehem is wherever there is a Catholic church or chapel, where Christ is present in the tabernacle. These are the two facts which we commemorate on Christmas morning. But Christmas and the Eucharist are not only facts, they are also mysteries. What is the mystery of Christmas? The mystery is the incredible reality of why God became man. He didn't have to do so. God did not even have to make the world. And within the world, he did not have to make us. Except for the love of God, you and I are empty, unoccupied spaces on earth. But having decided to make the world and to make us, God also decided that once humanity had fallen, he would redeem us. Now, God might have redeemed humankind by an instantaneous act of his will, but he didn't choose to do so. Rather, he chose to become a man so that as a man, he might have mortal flesh and a soul capable of suffering. In a word, the mystery of Christmas is the mystery of God's love that chose to take on our human form in order to show us how much he loved by suffering. The ultimate reason for Bethlehem is Jerusalem. The only reason in God's mind for becoming a child was that so he might as a man die on the cross. So the mystery of Christmas is the mystery of God's unfathomable love that desires to suffer for your sake. God took on human flesh so that he might be able to endure pain for you. That is the mystery of Christmas, the mystery of God's love, in order that loving he might endure the cross for you. What is the mystery of the Eucharist? It is the same. You would think that God's love would have been satisfied with his becoming man and living as a man, suffering, dying for our sins, and having once died, rising from the dead, returning in human form to the Father from whom he came, but no. The mystery of God's love is that he invented a way of showing his love for us, not only by being with us or by being near us, but God even invented a way of being inside us. All of this tells us a lot about what love really means. Love wants to show that it loves. It is not satisfied with sentiments or with words. Love wants to prove itself in deeds. Better, it wants to show its love in pain, in offering itself. Love wants to be near the one it loves, to be united with the one it loves, All of this is hidden behind the mystery of the Holy Eucharist, made possible by the mystery of Christmas because the two mysteries are really one. The Eucharist is but an extension, a continuation of what happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Because Mary gave birth to the Son of God, we now have the flesh 
of the Son of God near us, with us, and when we receive him in Holy Communion, within us. And so the lesson. The lesson of Christmas and of the Eucharist should be obvious by now. God does nothing in vain. He did not choose to become a man, nor does he remain a man in our midst, except that he wants to evoke from us something of the same kind of love that he showed during his life on earth and still shows us in his life in the Eucharist. Jesus Christ gives us his flesh and his blood to adore, worship, and nourish our souls so that we might be enlivened with his life. He wants us to love him as he has been loving us. And how is that? First of all, he loves us in simplicity. Is there anything more simple than a child or anything more simple than the round wafer in the Eucharist? God wants us to love him in simplicity. Above all, we cannot love God in complex ways by dividing ourselves up. He wants our whole heart, not just part of it. We are to love him simply, unquantifiably, totally. And God wants us to love him humbly. Is there anything more lowly than a baby? They're speechless, they're helpless, they have to be fed, carried from place to place. Is there anything more unpretentious than what seems to be a piece of bread, a sip of wine? And yet we know real humility is always hiding itself, hiding its greatness out of love. What a hard lesson for us to learn, to love this God of ours humbly. In the words of the English carol, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. See him in a manger lies, he who built the starry skies. We are to love God and we are to love him obediently. When God came into the world, he came, as scripture tells us, obedient, first of all, to his father's will. And then as a child and through his growing adulthood, he was obedient to his mother Mary and to St. Joseph. But in the Eucharist, he is totally submissive to the church. The moment the priest pronounces the words of consecration, Jesus Christ comes down to the altar. He obeys. This is our faith. And perhaps this is the hardest lesson to learn, to love God obediently. It means, as we know, Obeying God not only interiorly or according to our own understanding or interpretation of his will, it means obeying God as that divine will is explained and interpreted for us through the church, through his very fallible and weak human servants and ministers. These are the lessons that God wants us to learn on Christmas. A historical event, a perennial reality, because the Eucharist and Christmas are one. Believing in Christ's real presence, we have now the grave responsibility of invoking in faith this Jesus, of begging him, pleading with him, that he may give us those same graces, if need be miraculous graces, the graces that this sinful world needs that he came so desperately to redeem. Jesus redeemed the world, but it is not redeemed unless we cooperate with his grace. 
And we must cooperate with his grace, not just for ourselves, but for the whole world. So that Jesus' coming to the world will not for any soul have been in vain. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever.